You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, December 6, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Evan Bernstein. And we have two special guest rogues on this show. George Robb. Kiwi. Kiwi, Kiwi. And Susie Wills. Yay, Susie. So as you could probably tell by now, we are in front of a, of a live audience. This is a private recording we're doing while we are in Auckland, New Zealand. So welcome all the Kiwis. <laughs> Susie and George, we're going to chat with you in a moment. But we're going to start the show as we always do with a This Day in Skepticism. Yes. Uh, normally I go a bit further into Give me that look, Steve. I'm giving you a look. It's, no, that I don't. I don't. No, he, he like does that, that face every time. Every you time. just never see it. I just yeah, I'm normally right. ignore it. Or I'm in another state. Yeah. Which is when I give you a look, you'll know it. Uh, <laughs> why I oughta? Uh, <laughs> normally, this day in skepticism is a bit older, but uh, today I decided to go for a more recent item that we probably even covered on the show. So it's kind of like this day in the skeptic's guide to the universe. We probably talked about uh, December 6, 2006, uh, NASA images came back uh, suggesting that there might be water still flowing on Mars. Do you guys remember talking about this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we talked about it. Wasn't it? Didn't we, they figure out what it was not liquid? It was ice, right? No, in the final analysis, it does seem like water, it, when the conditions are right, it actually bubbles up through the surface. It can flow very briefly, but then it evaporates quickly because, you know, the atmosphere on Mars is only a hundredth that of Earth. Yeah, that's it. I yeah. thought it was a thousand. Uh, no, it's a hundredth. One percent. Yeah, one percent of an atmosphere. Still, you know, might as well be a vacuum as far as livability is concerned. And we didn't yeah. find any water monsters, so... No. It's a bit of a disappointment. Mm-hmm. So is the gravity on Earth, is it to our benefit because it helps maintain our atmosphere? Yeah, it holds the, our moisture. Yeah, it certainly helps hold gases, right? Yeah. Just like yeah. Jay. I don't <laughs> hold my gas. <laughs> I know, I just wish yeah, you like My ass is like Mars. I just <laughs> Something comes in the surface and it just evaporates out. <laughs> <in the> water, <laughs> right? yeah. It's not The atmosphere, though, is not just a, a factor of gravity because Venus, similar to Earth... Much denser atmosphere than we have. Mars, only a little bit lighter than Earth, and has a very wispy atmosphere. Magnetosphere? Is that... It's it's, it's the fact that we have a magnetic field, and that protects our atmosphere from the solar wind. Mars does not have a magnetic field, so the solar wind strips it away. It's also volcanism, so we are replenishing our atmosphere with volcanism, whereas Mars, the crust is completely solidified, because it is smaller, and so there's no active volcanoes on Mars. Curious. Yeah. George, can you do me a favor? Sure. Can you write, uh, rewrite uh, 
the song Solar Wind for me instead of Summer Wind. Ooh, no. <laughs> Solar Wind comes rushing in across the bay. No? You're not going to do okay. that? Okay. Give me four minutes? What do I have? What's the time? What's the time? Whenever you got time. Wait, you are Weird George Yankovic. Right? Exactly, yes. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. Yeah, you did write That's a song concept. in 10 minutes in Australia. No, I was like that was like 30. And it was like a wonderful, original, heartbreaking uh, original song. Yeah, it was awesome. Not a weird out yet. This guy, so we uh, we auctioned. There was no solar wind, but it was you know it was okay. Yeah, we auctioned um, for someone to uh, George will write them a song on the spot. Took him thirty minutes, but that night, yeah, and then he performed it like thirty-two yeah. minutes later. Yeah, um, and so it what he's saying is you missed your deadline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, so what was the guy's story? I had to give it was the, really the guy cool. Back. Yeah, no, so we had this auction, and and and, and it, it got really like expensive and awesome, and I was really flattered, and so I took the we made that the first item at the auction. To, like I said, can this please be first, so I can have as much time as possible to write this thing. So we did that first. I grabbed uh, the guy's name was Dave, and we went out in the hallway, and we just started talking, and I was like, where are you from? And he's like, oh, I'm from Sydney. I guess he lived in Sydney. And I said, what do you do? And he's like, I'm an anesthetist. I'm like, what rhymes with anesthetist? I said, oh, my God. And I noticed he had an accent that wasn't Australian. And I said, where are you from originally? And he says, Poland. And I'm like, oh, okay. So what's the deal with, like, how'd you come to Australia? I said, well, my family had to secretly escape from Poland in 1985. We took a trip to Italy. And then we basically just, like, ran away to this to the Italian consulate and, like, took refuge there and left everything behind. And I'm like... That's the song. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote this. He just said, "Yeah, we had to leave with we had to leave with no warning." And I was like, "No warning." That's the title. And I said, "All right, go away." And he went away, and I went over the corner, and then just wrote this little song about about a family leaving in the middle of the night with no warning and leaving everything behind. His dad was a carpenter. His uh, his mom was uh, was like a, a a travel booking agent or something like that. So I just like used a little bit of wood metaphor and you know working on thing and yeah, it was it was. Boom. It came out it was very cool. really. That no, really was fun. Good. Was what fun. did you end up rhyming anesthetist with? I don't remember. Uh, the best with this. Yes. Okay, that's right. That's <laughs> that's, that's what okay. I, yeah. no, I uh, Bob, so just a playing off of the This Day in Skepticism, the, the whole bit about water on Mars, there's a bit of an update with that. So this is definitely related to what, to what Rebecca was talking about. Uh, a new study from scientists is kind of pointing to the idea that the, the idea of Mars being wet happened in the past, but only over very you know, repeated events caused by volcanism. So it's not something that happened for a long time. It just happened kind of intermittently. Uh, which is kind of a brand, brand new idea. Because when we think of, of Mars, and ancient Mars anyway, we think that there's water flowing everywhere. It might have even been, been tropical. And, but now they're thinking that maybe that wasn't the case. Because if you look at the period in time in Mars when water was flowing about 3.7 billion years ago, the atmosphere was crazy thin. I mean, yeah, I think it was even thinner than maybe even now. But either way, it was very thin and it was very cold. And also the sun back then, how, what do you think the, the what was the sun like, say, 3.7 billion years ago? How would you think it would be different? A younger, a younger sun. Was it a little bit brighter? No, it was actually 25% dimmer. Oh, so, oh. so there's less solar ra- radiation Why? hitting. That's just the, the evolution of, of, of a star. It's, it, gets, it gets brighter. Oh, it's yeah. getting, it's getting brighter and bigger even, even now, Jay. So in, I think, um, a few hundred million years, it's going to be almost unlivable on, on the planet, unless you're yeah. bacteria. So yeah, that's just that's just how it progresses. So if you look at Mars, 3.7 billion years, it was really cold. Um, the atmosphere was really thin, and the sun was dimmer. 
And, oh, this one was really cool. They ran some atmospheric models of Mars, and they found that there was not one, there was not one place on Mars that could have had liquid water. So none of that really makes any sense. How could there be water on Mars if all those factors were coming into play? One possibility that they came up with when they ran these simulations with that was that um, if the axis, the axis of Mars was shifted 40 degrees, it's possible that it could have been uh, hot enough for parts of, of Mars to have water. But when they calculated where the wet place would be, it wasn't where we see all the, you know, the ancient lake beds and, and any of that stuff. So that didn't make any sense. Do those, do those lake beds, those have to be water-based? All those rivers and all those? It's a, well, I mean, we, we are so familiar with that, those kinds of geological structures right. on the Earth, it's pretty clear to geologists that this is flowing water or flowing something. Uh, flowing something? I mean, like, right. What else could it be? Could it be methane or could it be like some kind of a something it's else? Blood, perhaps? It's not, blood. It's not, not quite, cold enough for methane. It's not cold enough for methane okay. to flow. Thicker so water, chances are it was... So it's got to be water. It's, it's got to be, be water. water. Okay. So yeah. the question then is, what is the mechanism? How, how do you explain evidence of water on a planet where back at that time water does, couldn't have existed? But I'm confused about the whole premise because I okay. thought that Mars had a lot of water and it evaporated off. Well, we, there's no question there was flowing water on ancient Mars because we see ancient riverbeds and lake beds. And yeah, there's, that's, there's that's just in, in geological so formations right. that we know from looking at the Earth 100% was formed by flowing water. Right. So what the scientists at Brown University and the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel, what they're saying is that the mechanism to allow this to happen are, is volcanoes. If you look at the history of Mars, at that time, about 3.7 billion years ago, when all this water was really flowing, there was incredible volcanic activity going on. So they thought that maybe that was related somehow. But the thing is, when you think of volcanoes on the Earth, what, what do you think? You have ash being spewed into the atmosphere, mm -hmm. it blocks light, and things get colder. So how does, that, how, did, how does that make Mars warmer? It doesn't seem to make sense, right? So they ran simulations again. Thank God for simulations. And they discovered that the sulfuric acid particles from the volcanoes um, would interact with the dust on Mars that actually, I'm not sure how that mechanism would work, but it actually lets the light, it's less reflective, so the light gets, you know, deeper into the atmosphere and can warm up the planet because of the, the interaction between these, these compounds. And also, it's possible that sulfur dioxide could have been spewed out in great quantities and that would cause a greenhouse effect. So they think that's kind of what happened. But that's not even the fascinating part because they think that if this happened the way they think it did, it only happened episodically. We would have, you'd have volcanic eruptions and then for either 10 to, 10 years to 100 years, just a century, water would flow and then it would go away. And there'd be no more water. The water would be gone. And then, um, after many centuries or millennia, you'd have, you'd have another volcanic eruption, more water. So, and so this happened for 200 million years. That's a long time, but it, but it's, even though it was episodic, you could still have enough water flowing to account for what we observe. So it kind of all makes sense. Planet-wide volcanic things or like one no, huge it's, volcano? It, primarily in specific areas where they, all this volcanic activity happened, which also happens to be where a lot of this okay. evidence happens. Now, none of, this isn't ironclad. This isn't like a done deal and we're, you know, we're ready to move on. There, um, it's still preliminary, so keep that in mind. Um, one guy said a quote, James Bell is a planetary geologist. He said um, that they make a reasonable argument that's consistent with a lot of the data, but there's still a lot of other data that's not consistent with the idea of water's limited presence on the planet. So it's not a done deal with, with that. So my, the implication that really strikes me about this is, is, is life. What's the implication for life on Mars? If you've got an ep, just an episodic kind of life, 
could you really, can life really start? Even, you know, if you have water flowing for 100 years, Steve, what's, you know, what, what could really happen for, in 100 years? Um, yeah, unless there was a period or a condition somewhere else on Mars where life could evolve and then adapt to that kind of situation. Right. Um, one scientist was comparing this to al algal mats in, the, in Antarctica because they, they can go through um, extremely cold and dry times where, they, where they're just kind of like uh, quiescent and they're not like yeah. suspended animation. But that has to evolve already. That assumes that something's already evolved. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's some, some subsurface water that was persistent that allowed life to evolve and just the surface was episodic. Right. Or maybe panspermia. Maybe life mm -hmm. came from the Earth and landed and got life going. So, so interesting, though. So we'll see how that pans out. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like overall it would be a negative thing for the prospect of life Absolutely. on Mars. Yeah, you know, if you only have true. these brief spurts of water rather yeah. than there was millions of years of continuous lakes and rivers on Mars. Right. So, that's Mars is just not hospitable. It's just not yeah. a good place for us. I'd rather us make a base on the moon than to waste our time going to Mars. Well, that's the what practical that? next step to getting to Mars. Yeah. Is really yeah, getting to the moon first, and moon then base you, alpha, and then you think about Mars after that. And this news though isn't. Particularly about us and our ability to like terraform Mars or make it habitable for humans, I think, isn't it more just about what life could have been before, right? right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, regardless, like we could still set up a base on Mars. Like this doesn't really change that, I don't think, right? Or does it say like maybe a volcano will blow us up? No, no, it, it, yeah. there's no, it doesn't impact the possibility of that happening for sure. Just the probability of finding life. Yeah. Hiding away somewhere on Mars right. doesn't, no, not as good as we so, thought. Yeah. If, maybe, maybe. If this is correct. If this yeah, is correct. it's hard to say. Well, Susie, this is your second time on the show. Yes. Thank the, you for having me. The first time we were talking about the conference that we're at right now. And you're, now you're here. You're here. Now we're here. In our city of volcanoes. That's right. appropriate, yeah. really. We've smelled it. Yeah. You know, we know about what ancient Mars smelled like. It smelled Rotorua. like Rotorua. Yep. Yeah. I, we, were at a, we were at a hotel in Rotorua, and multiple times I would walk outside, and then I'd look around for Jay, like, Jay, what the hell? And then somebody would say, we're in Rotorua. I'm like, oh, of course we are. That explains it. Yeah. Right, Jay? I did, I, you know, I did wake up one of the nights we were there. I woke up, and I'm like, oh, I just blew the hotel room out. <laughs> like, blew the town like, out. And then my brother-in-law was like, "No, there's there is like a volcano like around here. That's that's actually like shit that comes from hell." You realize that? <laughs> Brimstone. I loved it. Mm -hmm. So, um, tell us some more about. So, when we all got here, you took our picture illuminated by bacteria. Tell us about that. So, uh, yeah. So, I'm a microbiologist, but um, fascinated by creatures that glow in the dark. And um, so, actually, for my research, I take the genes from various creatures like glowing bacteria and put them into really nasty bacteria. Um, but I like to have some glowing bacteria that aren't nasty to kind of show people some of the concepts um, that we work with, but then also to take these amazing pictures. So I have this cube kind of pop up and I make people sit inside it in the dark and then um, have petri dishes that have these glowing bacteria on them. And the idea is that the only light that's reaching the camera is coming from the bacteria. So I take these amazing pictures and maybe we'll put them up on Flickr mm -hmm. somewhere where uh, people are just this beautiful kind of bluey green glow, um, which is the color that the bacteria are glowing. So yeah, it, it's, um, 
It's really cool. Like, you came up just so awesome with your hair. It was just... <laughs> basically, anything that's yeah, going to be great, white... Yeah, it was great, Steve. Yeah, it was awesome. You looked so good with your hair, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, for our, really for listeners, and fantastic. For Both our listeners, Susie is pointing at me. I mean, the corona on George's head, though, was that, awesome. Yes. Yeah. It's really impressive. That's what I'm going for, the corona. Yeah. What chemical causes that color, that blue-green glow? Uh, so that is a bacteria that's producing a, a light using a chemical reaction. So the, we call the chemicals luciferin and luciferase, but actually we know of about five different luciferin luciferase pairs. So the ones, um, so they're all kind of chemically different. So it's the same reaction that fireflies use to glow, but slightly different chemicals. Um, and so, and the color of the light's kind of dependent on the luciferase. Mm-hmm. So, and this is the color of light that travels best through water. Um, so this is a bacteria that I isolated from some fish that I bought in the supermarket mm-hmm. uh, um, because being in New Zealand, it had to be something native um, and not dangerous so I could take it out and do it, do things like this at schools and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, yeah, and so it's this beautiful... I, I love it. I, oh, I so, spent so, so you, much time wait, in the dark. Fish, yeah, what, like you how? bought so fish at the supermarket yeah, and yeah. they had glowing so, bacteria Okay, do you want me to tell you the story because they're very cool? So um, this, uh, this is a bacteria called Photobacterium. And the reason it glows is because it wants to be inside of the guts of fish because that is a really awesome place if you're a bacteria because it's so full of nutrients. So what um, some scientists discovered quite recently, actually, is that what happens is this bacteria is kind of floating around in the sea and it gets swallowed by zooplankton. And then the zooplankton realize they can't actually eat it. So now you've got this little zooplankton floating around glowing in the dark. And it just so happens that this makes them visible to fish. So they've done some experiments in, in labs where they've had these little zooplankton um, and you put them in a tank with some fish and, hey, they get swallowed by the fish. So what happens is these poor little zooplankton who are now glowing get eaten by the fish, then digested, and the bacteria survive this passage into the gut and they get released into the fish's gut and that's kind of where where they want to be. And then, of course, what happens, the fish poops and the bacteria ends up back in the sea mm-hmm. and then it kind of has to go through the cycle again to get... Back into the fish. Does so, the bacteria So glow? remember this, Rebecca, the next time you're surfing yeah. and you uh, yeah. take in some... I'm some, a surfer now, you yeah. guys. I'm a next surfer. time you take in accidentally some seawater, yeah. you may well be swallowing photobacterium. How do they in sur- poop. poop? In poop, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there'll be, there'll be lots of them just in the sea, too. Will they be, well, does, do they grow, glow throughout this process? So does the poo glow? As it through. Uh, so it'll not so that we would be able to see it, I don't right. think. Um, so the the amazing thing about these glowing bacteria is a lot of them only glow when they reach a certain cell density. So it kind of makes perfect sense because they've got to produce this light using a chemical reaction and it requires a lot of energy. So there's no point glowing if there aren't enough of them to be seen. So what they normally do is they glow in what we call stationary, uh, going up to stationary phase when there's kind of loads of them around. Um, and actually the, the discovery of how bacteria turn on their light was how scientists discovered that bacteria can communicate with each other. So they all produce a signal and they measure how much of the signal is around and that is used to turn on a whole load of genes. And so, the, so this bacteria, um, so it was glowing bacteria from, from actually from a squid that led to that discovery, but then scientists realized that those chemicals were used by other bacteria to turn on other things. So things like to figure out that you're in someone's lungs and now's the time to cause disease, those are the same kind of chemicals they use to communicate. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. So it's called quorum sensing. It just means being able to sense enough of themselves. The, the trays that you had uh, that you used for yeah. the photographs, how long does a tray glow? I mean, is that going to go indefinite or...? 
No, so they they'll probably go for two or three days. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's and then it. they all kind of run out of juice and they all die and turn their lights off. But so did you so feed them like? No, so they were growing on on agar, so jelly, and that had kind of all the stuff they needed. But once they um, once they've all sort of grown and they've done their thing, then they sort of start to to die off. So by dying, they they stop fluorescing, as opposed to they stop fluorescing and then die. So I'm going to stop you there. Oh, sorry, not fluorescing. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. No, no, it's fine. Kiwi. I'm, I'm all right about kiwi this. Kiwi fruit. What? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So it's, fine. it's Maori. 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 Not Maori. Maori. Moldy. Moldy. Yeah. So what's the right Scotland. word? Hobbits. Sorry. So it's bioluminescence, which so is a different thing from fluorescence. So fluorescence is when you have these amazing chemicals that just by their structure, they glow. and they, But they have to be hit by wavelength of a certain, uh, light of a certain wavelength. Mm. And that kind of excites them or their electrons sort of pop out of orbit. And when they come back into orbit, they produce light. Bioluminescence is a chemical reaction that requires, that produces light. So kind of different things. So my bacteria don't require exciting. We don't have to hit them with light to make them glow. Unlike Whereas, Jay's hotel room, right. which requires a black light to see uh, <laughs> yeah. where it glows. Can you make, la- can you make lasers from that kind of uh, process? I mean, you got a, you know, you got a population inversion, right? And then when they come down, the light is emitted, and that's how a laser works. Well, so that would be fluorescence. So that the it's excitation thing. Fluorescence, yeah. So yeah. So okay. what I work with is bioluminescence, which doesn't require excitation. And so one of the things that's really useful about that is that you don't have to do anything to them. You don't have to hit them with light of a certain mm-hmm. wavelength. And so for my research, that's really kind of useful. So how is it produced? And how where is the light actually coming from if it's not? So it's a chemical reaction. So they put these two chemicals, luciferin and luciferase, together, um, and in the presence of oxygen and energy that comes from the bacteria, you get light as a byproduct. And that's for the entire life sp- Sorry, the whole no, and so when, so only when they turn these these genes on. So they turn on the genes to produce luciferase and luciferin, and then when those chemicals are present, get all all the light if there's oxygen around and energy. Right. And then once they don't need them anymore, they they stop producing the the products of those genes, and then you. You don't get light. And then they, they die or they can continue? Okay. Well, so oh. they'll, they'll be in kind of suspended animation, mm. I mean, essentially. Okay. And if I took, you know, off, you can leave these things kind of around. They might not be glowing. But if I took a little bit of, of it and put it on a fresh petri dish, it would glow up again oh, and cool. grow again. Okay. So, How do yeah. they survive the stomach acids? Are they extremophiles? Um, actually, I have no idea. I have no idea about the stomach acids of fish. I don't know what they what they do. I mean, some bacteria human. survive stomach yeah. acids. They I don't know about they, they produce proteins that are resistant to mm. you know the, the pH of the stomach, like E. coli. Right? Like e. coli, anything that you can get that can infect you from eating it has to survive stomach acid, right? Does that by definition make him an extremophile? No, we don't. No. Stomach no. Acids? no, we don't. No. Call them. It's a pretty harsh environment. No, it's not enough to doesn't doesn't count as an extremophile. So are glow sticks. Considered bioluminescence? No, so it's a completely different kind of chemical. But it is reaction. just two chemicals. That it is a chemical yeah. reaction. Yeah. But so, so that's sort of chem. I guess chemiluminescence is what you would okay. call that. Cool. Um, do as all animals bio. that glow use luciferin and luciferase? Some version of it, like the glowworms. For bioluminescence, yeah. So actually, so the New Zealand glowworms, it hasn't been discovered yet what their luciferin and luciferase are, and there's certainly a team down in Dunedin who've been working on it for a few years now. But they haven't quite. So we're not sure yet. No. That's what I was about to bring up. Like that, you know, Susie's the reason why we went to the glowworm caves, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, I'm obsessed. <laughs> uh, the first, yeah, the four years ago, the first time I visited New Zealand, she took me through and just like in the middle of the tour, she tells me this fact, like, Oh, we don't really know why they glow, basically. We know like, why they glow. We, we just don't know. We don't know no. the chemicals. Yet. Right. Right. The chemicals. Like, and it seems like such a, 
like it's just this tiny thing and like there's so many people studying it and you know and to, to not know that to me is just amazing and wonderful. What is the difficulty? It's not wonderful of, not knowing. It is wonderful. That's oh. one of the best parts about being a human is not knowing. Okay, but how many well, how many options can okay. there be? I mean So the way that the people in Dunedin were trying to figure this out was uh, essentially we know what the sequences of the genes um, for things like fireflies and stuff. So they're they're beetles. And so they were sort of looking for, sort of trying this quite dirty method to try and find, pull out genes that looked sort of similar using a sort of sequencing method. And as far as I'm aware, that didn't really get very far. So, I mean, really what you need, what they need to do is kind of sequence, probably sequence the genome right. of, a, of a glowworm. The other thing they were trying was a more protein approach. So they were sort of taking glowworms. I think I'm probably going to get this all wrong and Miriam's going to shout at me. But they, um, I think, were basically trying to see what proteins were there. And then if any of them made light, and then they would sort of try, you know, if you had any, like, collections of proteins that made light, then they could try and sort of find out what they were. Um, but I, they weren't coming up with much then either. So so they've tried the genetic approach, and clearly it's not the same gene sequence that a firefly uses. So it's something else. But it might just be because they're out by a few bases, and some weren't able to PCR it. Sorry, that's like, that's like so much jargon in those sentences. No, that's awesome. I'm really sorry. Yeah. For, for, the, for the work that you do, what, what, is the, what is the imagined like tech that will come out of this down the road? Like, what is the. Can we, can isn't, we, that, isn't that every scientist's worst nightmare question? Well, like, no, so for how can purposes? we turn this into a weapon later? Yeah. Well, so, no, I mean, how, how can I make like, you know, my drums glow? Right? Like, that's what I'm interested Where's in. my glowing kitten? I want, yeah, yeah, you know. So I guess the. Um, I am fascinated by the creatures that glow, but that is not. I don't research them. So what I do is I take these genes and I put them into really nasty bacteria. Because what I'm interested in is how they cause disease and how we can stop them. So how we can find new antibiotics and stuff. Oh, so this is for following them. Yeah, so I just, I'm just kind of fascinated by the oh. creatures because it's kind of good to know, you know your material. Yeah. But frankly, all I'm interested in are their genes. And then I take those genes and I put them into stuff like TB, food poisoning, E. coli. I'm kind of like a jack of all trades. Actually. So if you give me a bug that's kind of vaguely interesting, I'll try and make it glow in the dark. And so, and the reason that's really, there's, there's a number of reasons why this is really useful. So the, um, one of the first things about light is it requires energy. So only living cells will glow. So it means that we can use light to find really quickly whether our bacteria are dead or alive. So instead of having to grow them on petri dishes, like which for the ones we were working with yesterday, you know, your pictures will have grown by today, right? So we, I got these guys to draw in glowing bacteria yesterday. So they will have grown up overnight. But something like TB, that takes four to six weeks to grow on a petri dish. So that just the time that takes when when we're trying to find out whether it's dead or alive, well, you know, you could wait two months, or you could just make them glow in the dark like we've done, and then you put something with it, some chemical, and if they're dead, you just put it in a machine that measures light, and then it says light, no light. So you kind of get a, an answer within minutes, really, rather than two months. So you're, you're trying to cure a disease, but my glowing guitar idea, <laughs> right, I think that would be really Wait, wait, wait. Cool. First it was a glowing drum set. Hey, now I can, I can choose. Why don't I have to pick just one? Come on. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so the fact that it has to be alive means, you know, unless, well, so yeah, we could, we could, we could probably cover it in goo and maybe plate it. It'd be the first out. time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but enough about what Jay did. <laughs> but it would be cool if, uh, if they could give you like a tattoo that just emitted light that could feed off of your the energy in your body, that would be really 
I wouldn't do it, but <laughs> somebody would do it. I mean, you cool. can get fluorescent tattoos already. So yeah. ones that are so again, ones that you need a black light or something. No, to no, excite but them. no black light. You just yeah. it just yeah yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I saw a guy had a, a fluorescent tattoo in the shape of bone. So when you shine the light on his hand, it just looked like just bones. It was really cool. And it was invisible yeah. in normal light. That's yeah. that's pretty bad. Usually, it just looks like a bit of white on yeah. your on your arms. Yeah. What about the fish in the deep ocean? Do they use what kind of? Uh, bioluminescence do they use do we know so they use bacteria so things like the anglerfish yeah. um, they have a colony of glowing bacteria but yeah. again nobody's ever been able to actually isolate and grow it so we know that it's bacteria and they've been able to um, yeah. they basically know it's bacteria but the conditions that an anglerfish has for that bacteria to live in in its little um, lure uh, scientists haven't been able to reproduce those conditions in mm-hmm. the lab so we don't actually know how to Grow it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so loads of creatures in the sea that glow actually use uh, bacteria to do that. And they and often they have this sort of symbiotic relationship where they're producing a home and some nutrients, and in return the bacteria glows. And what, what often happens in these relationships is if the bacteria don't glow, then they won't be able to survive there. Mm-hmm. The, the creature will get rid of them because they don't kind of want this dead weight that isn't, isn't pulling mm-hmm. its weight, I guess. Has any right. human culture used... Bacteria, bioluminescent bacteria to make lanterns or something? Because, you know. So the, the problem, well, certainly not from bacteria. I mean, I guess people would have put fireflies in jars and stuff, right? But they right. Yeah. probably last very We used long. to smear them on our shoelaces. Does that count? <laughs> Shrek did that. We did it okay, my brothers used to do that. I used to cry. <laughs> but they said, and the number of people that contact me, um, actually kind of designers and stuff, who are like, yeah, we want to make some glowing furniture. And, you know, we could do that with the bacteria, but frankly, it would only be glowing for a couple of days and then yeah, it would stop. Keep it going, so, yeah. yeah, so actually one of my things for next year is I want to try and figure out if there's a way that we can culture these things in continuous culture to keep them glowing. Mm-hmm. But we might have to <laughs> assault them in some way because we need them to keep glowing. Right. So one of the things that's thought that, for example, this, this Hawaiian bobtail squid does is it produces an environment that produces lots of, they use the luciferase to kind of get rid of, of oxygen and other things. Um, so we'd have to kind of hit them with something <laughs> that they have to glow to get rid of. So, yeah, that's going to be my pet project for next year, I think, if we can figure that out. And then, hey, maybe we could make some glowing furniture. That'd be kind of cool. You mentioned you transfer genes. What vector do you use? Is it vir- like a virus to get the genes in there? So or? it depends on the bacteria. Uh, so some, so TB we use, uh, we've exploited um, a way that viruses get into B. Mm-hmm. Um, other ones... Uh, what have we done? We've done, so for some of the E. coli's, we use the way that bacteria have sex with each other. So they kind of, they exchange some of their DNA. So we kind of use those plasmids. Um, yeah, so it all depends on the organism. Whatever we can get our hands on, actually. Um, whatever is nature has provided. Mm-hmm. And I must say, I've been doing this a long time and maybe 15, 20 years ago when I was doing my PhD and people were like, oh man, you know, genetic engineering is really evil. And all I could come up with, it's like really easy. And, uh, and nature does it all the time. And all we're doing is just exploiting nature's things. It's like, so that's wrong. Should be. Yeah, bacteria are trading plasmids yeah, exactly. all over the place. Yeah, yeah that's we're just nothing. making them produce what we want them to produce. Right, exactly. Yeah, people say that as they inject their insulin, which is based on <laughs> bacteria that had insulin genes. Botox. In it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay, that was that was awesomely fascinating. All right, guys, we have to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. Well, I know we all enjoyed watching the series Twelve Essential Scientific Concepts by Professor Indre Viscontis. 
<laughs> she does a really, really good job of covering both the ancient principles of science and those that are more recently discovered. She takes these very complex ideas such as thermodynamics, magnetic fields, brain's plasticity, many other things. She brings them together in such a great way that really anybody can understand. And frankly, it's one of the best way to learn about these things. The Great Courses has over 500 different videos for you to watch, guys, and we highly recommend that you take a look at one of them because we know you're going to enjoy it. We've watched many of them ourselves, and I'm never disappointed. And Steve, you know, firsthand information. Steve worked with them, made his own video with them. Order from eight of the Great Courses' best-selling series, including 12 Essential Scientific Concepts, at up to 80% off the original price. But remember, this 80% deal is not going to last forever, guys. Yeah, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Anybody here hear of Dunning-Kruger effect? I know everything there is to know about that. Yeah. <laughs> How do you spell it? Dunno. So two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, um, they did an interesting study which has kind of become a very popular, uh, popular idea. They essentially took a, a subjects and they asked them to self-assess their knowledge on a subject. They gave them a test and said, how do you think you did on the test? And then they scored how they actually did on the test. And um, what was interesting is that people in the top 20, like the top quartile, the top like 20, 25 or so percent, slightly underestimated their performance. They thought they did a little bit worse than they actually did. At around 78%, people were pretty much right on this spot. Below that, people increasingly overestimated their knowledge and their performance on the test compared to how they did. Nobody ranked themselves less than 50%. Percentile, so everyone's above average, right? So everyone thinks they're above average. And even like the bottom... 10% of performers thought they were like in the 60th, the 55th percentile, which is interesting. At the time, you know, Dunning and Kruger explained this as the, uh, this is like a, a test of competency and that if you're incompetent, you essentially don't have the ability to evaluate your own incompetence, which everyone thinks, yeah, I know somebody like that. But so can you interpret that as like, a, if you're stupid, you can't know that you're stupid? That's how everyone interprets it, but that's really not a good way to interpret it. And this Dummy. is like, this is, this is why we're talking about it again. Dunning, one of the psychologists, wrote a good article about this you know, a couple of months ago, uh, which I then blogged about, but we haven't spoken on the show yet. But it's a really good follow-up. So there's a couple of points. First of all, um, yeah, the, the, the meme that sort of got out there in social media was, dumb people are too dumb to realize how dumb they are. You know, and that's fun to say. That's not really what Dunning-Kruger is saying. And that's not new. You know, that's, that's an idea that's been around yeah. for a long time. So yeah. it's kind of funny that, like, science was suddenly proving Shakespeare right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fool thinks he's wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Like, right. That seems to play perfectly. In that the is the Dunning-Kruger effect, yeah. So what's interesting, though, is that everyone is on the curve, <laughs> right? And everyone is on the curve in different places for different areas of knowledge. So it's not something that applies to other people. It's something that applies to us. It applies to everyone. Also, the question is, why do people so grossly, in the bottom you know, three quarters, why do they so grossly overestimate their own knowledge? Jay, what, why do you think people so overestimate their own knowledge? 
I mean, I can come up with a lot of reasons why I think we're, we're that's inside of us. Like, why do we naturally do that? I mean, part of it is, I, I would assume, like, confidence has something to do with performance. Um, so if we really thought and believed that we were wholly incompetent or, or stupid, that we would maybe not do as much or try as much as we do. The other yeah, thing, I mean, that's kind of like a motivation. It's like a blocker, reason. right? You don't, you, don't, yeah. you don't want to just sit there and go, I'm so stupid, I can't do anything, and, not, and like, lack motivation. Right. It's kind of like people confirmation video bias? Games. So, yeah. I, no. <laughs> yeah, Bob, you're getting close with confirmation bias. Again, that's why the people are too dumb to know how dumb they are. It doesn't really fit what they found. It's not that they lack information. It's that they're filled with misinformation. For example, if you talk to somebody who is a global warming denier, they may overestimate their own knowledge of the issue. It's not that they lack knowledge. It's that they have, they have confident misinformation. Is that Fox News is telling them they're right? Yeah. Well, so. that's, in that particular case, it's because sometimes it's because there are motivated outlets that something that I've in the past called sophisticated nonsense. You know, it's like if creationists are like we, I think we're, um, we may talk about this at some point, but the, the video, anybody here see the video of Megan Fox, who is a creationist who was going through the Chicago not Natural History Museum? Not, <laughs> not that one. A not worse the dumb one. actress. Yeah. She's an idiot. So. <laughs> she is. <laughs> Just a random cheap shot at Megan Fox. Why not? Random <laughs> cheap shot. She's, uh... So she's walking through the museum. Not the not the pretty Megan Fox, but the, the gracious one. <laughs> pretty dumb. And random cheap shot at the other Megan Fox. <laughs> you heard the things she said. We're not talking about that right now. But this woman is. Just Are we not getting right. confused? Yes. Not the actress. The non-actress <laughs> creationist Megan Fox who was going to the museum is like ripping apart the displays in evolution and saying, how could scientists believe this? They're so stupid. She's way, way at the lower end of the Dunning-Kruger curve. <laughs> but she's filled with misinformation. She's filled with ideas that are wrong. And it's not random. And she didn't think of these herself. This is There's a system, a culture of misinformation about evolution that's out there. And people get exposed to it, they get taught it, and they get filled with this false confidence that they know what the hell they're talking about. Meanwhile, she was spouting unending nonsense, demonstrable falsehoods. And we encounter this all the time, right? How many you know, topics can we come up that where you know, global warming, my opinion, GM, you know, genetic modification, creationism are definitely like the, probably the big three. I've, you know, gotten into long arguments with people about psychiatry. They, they don't know anything. They're just completely filled with misinformation. So it was very interesting to read, you know, Dunning write about that. This is now whatever it is, 15 years or so after the Dunning-Kruger effect was published. He lamenting how misinterpreted it, is, it has been in the popular culture. But really there's a very important core skeptical lesson there. We, we are all, first of all, subject to it. We all have to, you know, again, at the same time, you could be at completely different places on that curve on different topics. And the thing to really be wary of is not the absence of information. It's being filled with misinformation, especially misinformation that has been systematically biased in one ideological direction. And that's where motivated reasoning comes in, which is sort of a form of confirmation bias. Although it's, a little, it's more of an active process, whereas I see confirmation bias as being more passive. It just sort of happens as a default unless you're working against it. Motivated reasoning is you're actively engaging, engaging. You're actively <laughs> engaging in reasoning that is promoting a specific belief system 
that you have. Is, right? But isn't there also the idea that you think you have all the information necessary to make yeah. a decision? It's like it's like the more you know, the less you know. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start studying a subject or you start jumping into a subject, you realize, wow, there is so much more here than I thought. And the more you learn, the more you realize, like by the time you have your PhD, you know nothing. It's like, you know, you graduate high school, you know everything. You go to college, you know a lot. You get your PhD, you realize you know nothing. And I think on that scale, people tend to not realize how much information is lacking. Mm-hmm. And they're making judgments on how much they understand the subject by only analyzing 2% of the information that's actually there. It's like, you know, someone that's going to tell you guys, oh, yeah, you just podcast. Yeah, you get together, you record a podcast, and that's, oh, yeah, it's great. Probably takes you an hour and 20 minutes, right? Yeah, great. How hard could it be? You know, they have no idea the complexities involved yeah. in trying yeah, to produce it. an hour something. and a half. Yeah, yeah. It's one <laughs> yeah, and half seconds, right? Steve, do people that lack knowledge, though, fit in to this paradigm? Because I, I can give you some examples of people I talk to. You know, they happen to be people I work with that have remarkably a very small amount of information about a topic like vaccinations is the big thing like every year when the flu vaccine comes like the, everyone at my job can get it for free and i'm literally one of those people that walks around and i'm trying to entice people to go get their flu vaccination and every once in a while someone will poke their head out and like want to know why i give a shit and then i'll you know do my one two on it real quick and i'm curious to know what they know like what what if they're not getting it why yeah, because it, it's a good thing to learn. Because I can the next time I talk to them, maybe I'll have an answer. And a lot of times they don't have a goddamn thing in their head. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't, uh, oh, vaccines. It's like, well, what? What about vaccines? <laughs> eh. there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's this. Yeah, but there's nothing there. Yeah, and so where, where are they on this? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I do think it's a combination of underestimating, as George says, underestimating how much knowledge there is, also in some cases being filled with misinformation. What I often do, because, you know, obviously I teach medical students, I teach other physicians, I teach people at pretty much every level of education. It's really fascinating to know. I mean, I I, like know when I'm talking to a first-year medical student versus a second-year medical student versus a third-year medical student. They're so different. But what I often ask them to do is, like, especially like, like when you get to a fellow, for example. So now that's like the highest level of specialized training. So this is somebody who has now completed uh, seven years of medical training. They've, they've done four years of medical school, a year of internship, and three years of residency. That's eight. I'm sorry, eight years of training. Um, and then they do a year of fellowship, and then they really learn you know, what's going on in that in their narrow area of specialty. And I usually like to, like halfway through the year or towards the end of the year, say, so compare your knowledge of neuromuscular disease after nine months of studying neuromuscular disease to what you had at the end of your neurology residency after, you know, basically eight years of medical training. You knew nothing, right? I mean, by comparison, you look back and like, wow, yeah, you, you thought you knew neuromuscular disease, but now you realize you really didn't. Now, what I want you to imagine, though, is that you are still at that level of ignorance for everything else. Mm-hmm. And it does that for, I don't know why that doesn't naturally occur to people. Or I will, in a, in a lay audience, I'll say, think of something you're an expert in. Everyone has something that they, whatever, a hobby, their job, whatever. How much do other people know about your area of expertise? When you re- see a re- news report, on the news, you know, about your something that you know a lot about. They're, they always get it wrong, like profoundly wrong. And you're annoyed at how wrong they get it. Um, so, but just, just remember 
that you're that person. You're as ignorant about everything else as you think everyone else is about your area of expertise. Thanks for and it's always like a light going on. <laughs> but but we, the, the, podcast, the process of doing this podcast yeah. is humbling to all of us. Yeah. And uh, the, the reasoning is that we'll talk about an item. So we, we research our items, and we know how to research, and we, we're very good at vetting the data and, and doing the process of, of putting, assembling a, a list of information that we want to give when we do a news report, right? And it happens quite often. We'll get a, an email from an expert. Like the, this is the person that like is you know literally invented the information or discovered the yeah. information. This happens to be the topic of my PhD yeah. thesis. And literally, they're, so they're the like time. Steve as the doctor talking to us, which I would let, you know it's a poor comparison, but we get it, but we don't get it all the way. And then they humble us because they're like, now let me tell you what the f-ing real story is. <laughs> but Jay, the thing I think you're mischaracterizing that a bit. That does happen sometimes, but I think generally though, what we get is. Not that you guys screwed up and here's what really happened. What they really do is give us, you guys pretty much got it right, but consider this. And he goes through details deeper. and uh, deeper. He takes a deeper dive than we could in, in the time that we have. Yeah. And that's what makes it really interesting to me. Because if you think you know something, yeah, we got it right. We weren't wrong. But there's these other layers that would that make it just yeah. so complicated and rich that we're, that we might have been lost on us. And, and then sometimes another person will write in and the two experts are arguing in two perfectly legitimate and different areas. And then we're, then we're like, well, <laughs> yeah, right. oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, that, but that's cool, too. So it, the whole thing is humbling for us. It's interesting. So we get every kind of response. Yeah. We get the, all right, you guys made a little mistake here. Or, yeah, you sort of got it, but you sort of had the wrong spin on it. I've gotten emails from scientists who like, yeah, but the researcher who did the study that you talked about, he's an asshole. <laughs> and like, they know the guy personally. Yeah. And like, there's just no way we're going to get at that level of insight into the culture of right. the scientists who are right. doing the research. Um, and of course, you know, why don't we always contact them? Well, first of all, we do as often as we can. You know, we have people on tap that we go to, to make, just to make sure, hey, am I getting this right? I'll email the author of the studies to get them on the show or to just say, hey, can, am I getting this right here? Can you like just give me a bullet? They don't always get back yeah, to us yeah. in time or at all. Um, so it's hard. It's really hard to do it in, in a news cycle kind of way. Right. And so then we count on the crowdsourcing after the words where, all right, if anybody did this as their PhD thesis, they'll email us. <laughs> and then, then if, and if we need to, we'll, we'll come back for the second bite. And often though, most of the time though, it's, it's what Bob said. That's like the 90% response we get. It's yeah. like, you guys were good as far as you went, but I, I love your show, and now this is my opportunity to tell you about the one thing I know more than you guys do. And they, and they give us more information, and it's great. I love it. It's an education for yeah. us. And if, you know, if we, and then I have to make an editorial decision about whether or not it's worth coming back and saying, hey, here's some another in, layer of information about the sign, which we do sometimes as well. Yeah, uh, you know, and just to get it back to the original Dunning Kruger. Yeah. Thing. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's, that's right. what we were talking about. <laughs> I was just uh, thinking of how to best sum up what you're saying. And what I'm thinking is a lot of people uh, mistakenly believe they understand a lot about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. But are misled by their desire to believe that other people are stupider than right. them. <laughs> no, I think that's true. And I think that's a general skeptical lesson. It's like a... Yeah. Yeah, like a fractal meta to meta meta. Yeah. yeah. So, and this this is a theme I think we've been hitting a lot recently on the show in a lot of venues is that you got to apply all these skeptical tools to yourself, 
and when you just apply them to other people, you're missing the point, and you're probably getting it wrong. And you're probably a jerk. <laughs> you know what's interesting? While we're on this, an interesting side note. We get emails from people, and a few weird things happen. One is, um, like this happens quite often, actually. Someone will say, you got this wrong. Steve will re-listen to the segment of the podcast they're talking about yeah. just to make sure that you know yeah. you have it in your head. Then he'll comment. He'll say, actually, no, that's not. We didn't say that. What you said, we said. We said this, and you're wrong, and here's why. And thank you for emailing. And then the guy writes back and goes, "Well, I didn't really listen to the whole news item." <laughs> they email us halfway through. Yeah. That's the best part. Those are the best part. And, and then the, we'll get like a second email, like, "Never mind, I never mind." Yeah, segment. Like, there's so trivial. I see you address this ten minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> What yeah, are you yeah, we, doing? Go out for a walk while you listen to the podcast or just sit there with your email yeah. program uh, open. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sometimes they, they do listen to the whole thing and their yeah. memory of it. They, I their like it because it. you could tell the bias they're bringing to that yeah. specific they topic. They hear what they want to hear. They hear what they want to hear, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they're all that idiots, sometimes. basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Squarespace.com. Hey, guys, you ever consider building your own website? I really recommend Squarespace.com. First off, they have responsive designs, which means that the design of the website will change depending on what device the uh, your visitors are actually looking at. It makes it very easy for you as a person that's building a website to just pick a template that you like and it will morph depending on what people view it on. Also, Squarespace has an incredibly powerful back end. I've used it. I just highly recommend it. The company is wonderful. It's just so simple to use. Anybody can do it. You don't have to have any experience in programming or anything else. Really, anybody can do this. If I can do it, you can do it. They have 24-7 support, which is great. Live chat and email. I like using both of those. And all of this for only $8 a month. And they're going to give you a free domain name if you buy Squarespace for the entire year. So you can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for our show. All right, guys, let's get back to New Zealand. Jay, totally different item. You're going to tell us about a whale fossil that was discovered Right here in New Zealand. A whale of a yes, fossil. Yes, I looked for New Zealand news items. Actually. I'm not going to go too deep in on this. You guys probably heard about this. And if I'm mispronouncing, you must help me because I'm horrible at whale. that. Oh, is it? Oh, <laughs> whale. <laughs> whale. It actually whale. makes like an F sound. Whale. <laughs> whale. 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 Fail. I love that. <laughs> Otago Department of Geology, PhD student, Robert uh, Bosenecker. Robert. Robert Bosenecker <laughs> <laughs> and his supervisor, Professor Juan Fordyce. Like, everybody's goddamn name. Like, what's, 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 where are the John Smiths in the world? So, Professor Juan Fordyce identified and named a, a new genus of ancient baleen. Baleen? Yes. baleen. Genus. Genus. You know what that means? Genus. Baleen. Filters. It's the There are two types of whales ones with teeth. And then ones with they have like broom. the broom, the broom handle. So they bring in the water. This is what they look like with the krill or whatever they eat, and then they squirt out the water. Uh, you want four dice? They identified and named the new genus. 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 Two <laughs> <laughs> work starts, George. A baleen whale. A baleen whale. They now call Toharata. Very cool name. Toharata. 
What does that remind me of something from Star Trek? I don't know. What was that skin? Because everything reminds you of something from Star Trek. <laughs> the Tomorata, which is a, a Maori, is Maori for Dawn Whale, or it can be interpreted. That's a cool name, Dawn Whale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is cool. Uh, wasn't and it, she, uh, wait, wasn't she Marianne? What? Wasn't she Marianne on Gilligan's Island? I don't know. Dawn Wells? Is oh, Dawn Whale. Sorry, sorry. appreciated uh-huh. by three of us. It's <laughs> <laughs> all like... That's all that matters. So, yeah, like you said, the whale belongs to the toothless filter-feeding family, and no chance I can pronounce Iomysticidae. Right. E-O-M-Y-S-T-I-C-E-T-I-D-A-E. Yes. Sure. Iomysticidae. That's close enough. All right, Iomysticidae. I'm feeling good tonight, man. Uh, it's very interesting that this is the first time members of this family have been identified in the Southern Hemisphere, so that's the key point to right. this news item. Uh, the whale lived between 25 and 26 million years ago, and it vaguely resembled a mink whale, uh, but it's more slender and serpent-like, which is actually kind of creepy. Did it have legs? No legs. The whole animal could have been about 8 meters long, and they were preserved in a rock formation near Duntroon in North Otago. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, the whole um, evolution of whales thing is awesome because 50 years ago, the creationists said, ah, you got hmm. whales. There's no connecting fossils between land mammals and whales. They're a kind unto themselves. There are no transitional fossils. And then in the 1980s and since, I think first in Pakistan and India, we started digging up these whale fossils, you know, fossilized whale ancestors. And basically, we fleshed out the entire evolution of the whale yeah. in the last 30 years. With Tiktaalik, was that his name? No, no, no. Tiktaalik's a fish. Ambulocetus. Ambulocetus is like the in the middle. It's the walking whale. It is the whale with freaking legs. Awesome. It is the quintessential transitional fossil. It completely blew away the creationist argument. And you know what they say? We're about the one Two in between. That one, yeah. They say, nope, those bats. Are, they don't have any connection between bats and other mammals. They just shift it over to oh, another oh, example. The yeah, they completely ignore the fact that we the ambulocetus totally blew them away. Yeah. And you know, whatever some someday we'll find some half bat mammal things, and then they'll just shift over to something else. Unbelievable. So, so why are we doing science then? Because we don't care about them. <laughs> <laughs> it is frustrating, but the fact is, we get to relish in awesome news items like yeah. this, and they just yeah, yeah. miss it all. Yeah, I love it. I love whale evolution. Hip it's bones, awesome. Right? They, they have, have leg bones. They have lip, hip, lip, leg, and hip bones still in modern. Whales. Modern whales have little vestigial hip, hip bones. bones. Yeah. Susie, how about a badass glowing whale, yeah. like a beacon <laughs> of modern science? I will do my best. Get on it. All right, get on it. And I'll ride that fucker. Yay! That's a good point, though, Susie. We don't we don't see any large glowing things. So apparently in New Zealand we have a, a giant glowing earthworm. How, big, how, how is big is giant? I have no idea, but I'm told they're big. <laughs> I right. have no idea. Your but husband is saying. Yeah. That's, that's, how, that's how he got her to the first date. He's a mathematician, so I don't really trust him. <laughs> is that the biggest glowing thing in the world? It's the second. There, there are very, there are some Again. quite big um, yeah, that's, beetles. That's big. Beetles. Beetles. beetles? beetles? <laughs> oh. Look at me, I'm glowing. I don't know why. It's great. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm just happy to be glowing. Now, do they, I mean, does that thing move around and does but, it interact with people and hurt them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, what, I, what I did learn just recently, though, is that um, 
from a quite a famous entomologist in New Zealand that he thinks that this one um, actually has a glowing bacteria inside of it. That's um, the reason the reports from the American Civil War that soldiers who had glowing wounds were more likely to survive their injuries. Wow. I because, have never heard oh, of that. So this is an awesome... Sorry, am I allowed to do this? Uh, there's this yeah. awesome... <laughs> there's an awesome glowing bacteria. It's one of the only bacteria on land that we know glows um, called Photorhabdus luminescence. And it normally lives inside... The, the most well-known symbiosis of this one is it lives inside a, a microscopic worm. And they, this worm burrows its way into larvae of various insects. Um, and then it produces a whole heap of toxins, which kind of kill this poor little caterpillar, which then starts to liquefy, and that's kind of awesome nutrients. And so the bacteria and the nematode all reproduce. And for some bizarre reason, the bacteria also starts to glow. Um, and it's thought that maybe this attracts more silly larvae to mm. the, you know, and then they're basically these, the worms and the bacteria reassociate, and then they kind of spill out this carcass looking for their next victim. Cool. And so he reckons we've actually got this bacteria in New Zealand, and that's the reason those ones glow. And so I, he was like, give me, you know, here's my card. We'll go and find some. I'm like, yes. <laughs> we're going to go and find ourselves some giant earthworms. So and wait, then we'll identify the bacteria. I've never heard this idea before. So in the American Civil War. Yeah, so, but, so there, apparently there's some documentation. So the really important part of that story that I completely missed out is that, so now we've got this kind of liquefied larvae that's this bag of nutrients that everything's growing in. And so what Photoabdus does is it produces antibiotics to stop other bacteria from taking advantage of the soup. Yeah. Um, and so what was likely happening, so this, this, these soldiers who survived, they had glowing wounds, um, and they used to call it angel's glow. But what's much more likely is those soldiers had got photorabdus, which lives in the soil, on their wounds. Uh, it was producing antibiotics, and that stopped other nastier bacteria <laughs> wow. from taking hold and killing those soldiers. We have to travel here to hear this? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I was thinking. You have just blown my mind. I've never heard yeah, of this. I can't believe yeah. that that... You know, that's that's you up? No, was it? Yeah. That's too fast. So can people see the wounds glowing? Yeah, I mean, it only happens under very certain um, circumstances. I think about this; it's to do with the temperature of people's bodies and blah blah blah. But yeah, there are apparently documents that um, it uh, it would help people. That's awesome. Survive. That is really cool. It's just in Rebecca. Yes. How come that when I go to YouTube mm-hmm. and I watch a video, uh-huh. interesting stuff happens? That you're going to tell me about. <laughs> good, good segue. Yeah. Good intro. I don't want to steal your thunder. Just go. Yeah. Yeah, so I found a really uh, cool study in the journal Social Science Computer Review, which I'm sure we all subscribe to, uh, or which someone on my Twitter feed subscribes to and mentioned. I read that for the articles. (laughs) (laughs) I read it for the sexy pictures of computers. Uh, So, yeah, there was a, a, a paper titled Down the White Rabbit Hole, Uh, The Extreme Right and Online Recommender Systems, uh, which was produced by researchers at University College Dublin. And uh, they were looking into the idea that people might get caught up in a sort of feedback loop when they're on YouTube. Uh, So we've talked on the show before about how people online can end up um, seeking out Information sources that already uh, stick to what they what they already know, you know. Uh, so if you are 
uh, left-wing, you know, you're going to be looking at left-wing sources and you sort of self-select your information. And that makes it difficult to reach out to people who are, uh, maybe, you know, if you're a skeptic and you're trying to reach out to somebody who's a vaccine denier, it can be difficult because vaccine deniers are looking at other vaccine denial websites and things like that. They're self-selecting this stuff. Uh, but what this research was looking at was not how people self-select, but how the uh, platforms they use might funnel them into uh, the same sort of bubble that they would otherwise be choosing for themselves. So, uh, you know, and this is interesting because a lot of these platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube claim to be politically neutral, you know, by, uh, by design, by necessity. Uh, if they were uh, not neutral in as many ways as possible, you know, obviously they would come under fire. So what they say is, so long as what you're saying is legal, you know, go ahead and say it. We're not going to censor people just because they have opinions that we don't agree with, you know, which is fair enough. However, these uh, sites use certain algorithms to... Uh, direct their users in certain ways. So this particular study looked at YouTube. YouTube, when you watch a video, off on the right-hand side, you'll see recommended videos. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's an algorithm that decides what videos YouTube will be showing to you in order to get you to click through and continue watching YouTube videos. And obviously the algorithm is focused on finding things that each user will enjoy in some way. Uh, but what these researchers were looking at is what exactly are they showing you? So they looked at extreme right uh, videos. Extreme right being uh, things like uh, very racist or nationalistic, uh, KKK, neo-Nazi sort of stuff. Some music as well, like, uh, you know, uh, nationalistic um, metal and things like that. And what they found was that, uh, by and large, basically they took all of this data from YouTube and they looked at which videos were being the most recommended. Uh, the most recommended being the number one most clicked link on any one YouTube page. And what they found was that with extreme right videos, that top video, uh, more often than not, tended to also be extreme right. Uh, not just being within the within the spectrum of something that that user might find interesting, but always specifically extreme right. And the top-rated video was much more likely to be extreme right than any of the other related videos. And what the researchers point out is that this can lead people to uh, getting trapped in an ideological bubble, uh, which can be particularly bad when you're talking about hate groups because the whole purpose of many people who are uploading videos that are uh, extreme right is to, in some way, encourage people to go out and to do something, to, uh, you know, activate this base of uh, racists and misogynists and, and things like that. And when you get caught up in that ideological bubble, it's much more likely that you will be able to activate that kind of base. So the researchers come to this uh, conclusion that even though we see these platforms as neutral uh, and we tend to think of people just choosing their content on their own, uh, 
the platforms and the algorithms they use actually do end up uh, pushing people in one particular direction. And so they suggest that maybe tweaks to these algorithms could prevent people from becoming more extremist uh, in their beliefs. It could help expose people to differing beliefs in some ways if the, the platforms are open to making these changes. Yeah, I hate the idea that the content I'm being fed through Google or whatever is being tweaked by, based upon what the algorithm thinks I'm interested in. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah. I hate when I do and Google searches and, it, it, oh, it, oh, great, my, my own blogs are coming up. That's right. awesome. It's like, no, they're just feeding me my own shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and no matter what, you know, there's always going to be an algorithm. Yeah. You know? And so, uh, unfortunately, there's no opting out of it. There's no way of saying, like, I want an algorithm that's not going to influence me. Yeah. Like, it's not going to happen, you know? No matter what, you know, it's going to have an effect on users. Yeah. And it's social engineering when you think about it. It right? is, yeah. yeah. Either way, you do it. I do think, I don't know, I just still think they should try to be as neutral as possible. Yeah. And they are. Well, but, you know, but, they're but, not... Would not suggest anything. This is a complicated thing, though, guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're not... Nobody is spinning... No plates behind the scenes, like trying to cause this effect. I mean, no, seriously, Google an unintended in particular, consequence. Yeah, they're, they are they are trying to produce hits, things Make that money. you want to see. Um, you, have you ever used somebody else's Google account mm-hmm. as an example? You could do this. You know, you could you could sign into your Google. I'm I'm a huge Google user and fan and everything, but it learns you. You know what I mean? It oh, knows sure. it knows a lot of stuff about you. Have you noticed? We're in New Zealand. Right. We're searching on Google here. We're getting New Zealand news items. Yeah. We're getting yeah. fed, you guys, what you would normally see. It's different than what I would get fed if I was doing the same searches sure. in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are ways that you could, you could make Google not know who you are. But the point being, though, is ultimately, maybe not in this particular circumstance, and like if they want to actually, so, like you were saying, social engineer some, yeah. something more constructive in the, in the search results, my circumstance, I'm looking up like Star Wars trailers and just show me everything. You know, I'm I'm cool with that. That you know, I'm not going to turn into an asshole from that. Um, really? But <laughs> did anybody see the, the George Lucas version of the new Star Wars trailers? Just go watch it. You're going to love it. Um, but the point being, no, what's that? The Lego version's better. I haven't oh, seen that one yet. Oh. I'll, I'll check it out tonight. Um, Lego. The, uh, I hate Lego the cool stuff thing about like Google, though, is it really does do us a lot. There's a lot of work behind the scenes in order to produce that information, and as fast as it is, and we should be thankful for it because it really is something. Uh, it's a miracle that they're able to do what they're doing. It is. It's fantastic. <laughs> the technology is just extraordinary. All praise Google. <laughs> so when we say Jay, it's like you, you want to you want to find a brand of Kit Kat bar, let's say, yeah. And you really want a peanut time. butter, <laughs> peanut butter version of the Kit Kat. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you find it. You find it, and you buy it. You've bought the thing you want, and now every ad that comes up is for a peanut butter Kit Kat. Right. Yeah, bar. you've already bought it though. But you've bought it already. Yeah. Like that's that's the thing that's the most like yeah. every yeah. piece of gear that I look for for the next six months. Now it'll say, Hey, you want a crash symbol? Yeah. You want a crash symbol? The thing like, is, they don't know, Google doesn't know that you purchased it. Of course. Yeah. And Google's that's algorithm right. is saying. You this search person has searched for this. For this. Oh, they no, probably haven't bought it yet. I get it, but I want it to phosphor. I want it to bioluminesce and be able to provide. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like I think, in a way, you know, we're at this early stage of developing these algorithms. So, you know, when I'm on YouTube, I actually get served a ton of recommended videos that are 
just the worst possible thing for me. And they actually tend to be extremist yeah. content. Like, you know, I, if I like uh, watching like Anita Sarkeesian videos, uh, who's a feminist game critic, I'll get a bunch of videos in the sidebar that are like, you may also like Anita Sarkeesian is, you know, a Jew, like, whore. You know, and it's like, whoa, what? No. It's like the and Google so, ads on our site. Would yeah. you like this homeopathic remedy? Right. <laughs> yeah. I just wrote an article trashing homeopathy. They haven't triggered that. So I, I haven't would, figured that out yet. I would love to see a similar study like this, but looking at less extreme yeah. viewpoints, like, like a skeptical viewpoint, for yeah. instance, or yeah, a feminist, yeah. or, you know, something like that, um, and how that pans out because yeah. I get the feeling that mm-hmm. because the algorithm is in a way so basic it's going to latch on to those black or white sort of uh, options so when you do do you know when you when when you do uh, watch extreme right videos it's like oh good I know exactly what you want <laughs> you know yeah. and bam like I've got you it should allow you to opt out of it yeah yeah it that's what allow I was user, say. user like stumble upon lets you Thumbs up or thumbs down content, and it changes its algorithm. What happens if you That's clear cool. your browser, that, clear your cache, clear all that stuff? Does all that go no, away? No, you have to delete your Google account. You have to delete the Google account. Well, you have to it, not it's, be it's signed in. Yeah, these, these solutions don't actually solve the problem that the researchers have identified. You know, uh, which they're not talking, they're not looking at people who would opt out of these things. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking at people who would see that next extreme right video right. and say. Oh, okay. Well, that supports the thing I just saw. So this is, and it gives a false sense of uh, majority, yeah. and uh, helps activate people, helps f- give them a feeling of community with a very extreme, uh, yeah. you know, hate movement uh, type of, of uh, ideologies. It's a bit scary. I mean, because increasingly the internet is our one source of all information, and it's complicated managing that massive amount of information. And essentially, computers are deciding how we access information based upon algorithms that are not serving our own interests or even desires. It's kind of serving whatever, some click algorithm. And just wonder how far that's going to go. You know, we're all going to be living in our own Internet bubbles, you know, that are just crafted to us. That's why I I do like the opting option. At least if it's right there, do you want a Google search that remembers your history? Do you want one that's totally neutral? Do you want news that's skewed towards New Zealand? Do you want yeah. it skewed internationally? <clears throat> Do you just want the most popular of everything that's happening out there? You know what I mean? And, and then like, I'd like to compare them. That'd be one hell of an app for someone to write. Like, I want to see Google as it, it appears in 50 countries of yeah. my choosing. Yeah. You know? See, and that, that would be really cool. But again, you know, that's for somebody who's already primed with the idea of, oh, it's a, it's a benefit to me to seek out Opinions yeah. that are different from my own, like new, seek out new lives and new civilizations. Yeah, you too bold to go. <laughs> blah blah blah. Uh. <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our live show in New Zealand in order to do our first ad, Pro Flowers. Steve, you ever make macaroni art for mom? When I was like six. Well, that, I mean, that was a way of showing mom that you loved her, you know. But that's what kids do. Why don't you buy mom some flowers for Mother's Day? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Hey guys, Pro Flowers is now offering podcast listeners 100 blooms with a free glass vase for just $19.99. Or you could just upgrade that to a premium vase and chocolates for just $9.99 more. ProFlowers.com has done a great job putting together all your needs for Mother's Day for all the moms in your life. You have your mother, you have your wife, your sister's probably a mother as well. 
ProFlowers.com has a great website. It's very easy to buy beautiful gifts for all the moms in your life there. And you're going to get flowers that are fresh and beautiful. They're going to last at least seven days. Choose your delivery date that you want. It's guaranteed. What could be better? Yeah, so go to ProFlowers.com while there is still time. Click on the blue microphone in the top right corner and type the word skeptic. That's S-K-E-P-T-I-C. And order today because this offer expires Friday night at midnight prior to Mother's Day. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys ready for this week? No. Bring it. Yes. You can do it. you ready? All right. Susie. Here are the three items. Again, one of these is fake. All right, number one. A recent study found that in five adult ICUs in one hospital, there were over 2.5 million patient alarms in one month. Item number two, a new prospective study finds that those with a commute greater than 31 miles one way have an increased life expectancy uh, compared to those who live closer to work. And item number three, scientists have discovered the oldest carving by a human ancestor, 500,000 years old, and the first by Homo erectus. So we're going to start by polling the audience. George, will you do your single clap thing? Sure. Okay. So, if you think that 2.5 million patient alarms a month is the fiction, clap once. <laughs> it's it, late. <laughs> yep. If you think that having a long commute to work increases your life expectancy, clap once. And if you think that scientists discovered a 500,000-year-old carving by a Homo erectus, clap once. That's the fiction, clap once. Sorry. All right, wow. so that looked like two, then one, and then nobody believes three. Okay, um, or thinks this is the fiction. So let's go down. We'll start with our guests on the uh, right. Let's go first. Okay, I read something about the carving. 500,000 feels really old, though, and I think that's the trick. I think the trick is that I think Steve knows we all read. We saw the little potato with the, with the carvings on it, and we're all going to go, oh, that's real. Uh, half a million seems too much. I'm saying that's the fiction. I'm saying that's the fiction. Okay. I'm saying that's the fiction. Susie? Oh, I'm going to be really dull and go with the... So that you have a better life expectancy if you... Commute to work. Long commute. 31 long commute. miles more than, more, more than 30 no, miles. I'm going to go with George. You think that the yeah. 500,000, that, that's the fiction? Yeah. Okay, Evan. How many ICUs in the 2.5? Five. It's basically one hospital, five, which has five adult ICUs. There were over 2.5 million patient alarms in one month. That seems high, too. Jesus. No, this thing's got a full time. Yeah, I have no idea what a patient alarm is. You mean like when somebody stops breathing and goes like... Yeah. Okay. An alarm going off. It happened 2.5 million. Greater than 2.5 million times. Uh, That's a really high number. 2.5 million of these things going. Five ACUs, got a number of patients. Can I use a calculator to calculate how many times per second that went off? Mm -hmm. That's too high. Is that allowed? That's nope. too high, Steve. Not allowed? <laughs> Patient alarms has got to be the fiction. I, I think of the three of these, that's the most extreme number here. So that's the fiction. Patient alarms? Okay, yep. Bob. Can you skip me? Nope. No. <laughs> Homo erectus, huh? First one, half a million. 
Um, <laughs> seems high, right? I mean, it, it does. But 2.5 million—that's like no, that seems high too. A lot. Jeez. And that's in five patient bays, in one one month. Five pa- five adult ICUs. Hospitals have multiple ICUs. Okay, they so just put multiple beds. All in the seat. adult ICUs in one hospital. Over the course of one month, there were two point greater than 2.5 million patient that's alarms insane. went off. All right, half a million is too too big. That's okay, Rebecca. I was going to go with the commute thing because I, I feel like commuting more than 30 miles would significantly decrease my life expectancy. Uh, and, you know, like traffic accidents happen a lot. But then I was thinking most accidents occur within like a mile of home. Uh, and then I was thinking um, most rich people uh, can afford to live in fancy suburbs and commute into the city and back out. And they would probably have higher life expectancies anyway. And people of a lower economic class you're, you're overthinking. would live. Okay. <laughs> the Homo erectus thing. Yay. <laughs> See, so the one that you said that if you live 31 miles or, or farther away from work, you have an increased life expectancy. Yes. So we're saying that the more time you spend in the car it has equates somehow to a higher life expectancy. It's That's very right. interesting. At that one alone, I could turn around a million times in my head. I mean, I'm thinking, like, and I've done long and short commutes, and I'm much happier with a short commute, and I think happiness is important. All right, I'll, I'll take that one as the fake. I think that's wrong. Okay, so we're spread out. So Should we repoll the audience? Yeah, we'll repoll the audience. So this is to see how much of an influence our expert panel had on you. So if you think 2.5 million patient alarms in one month is the fiction, clap. If you think... Longer commutes make you live longer. Clap. If you think that uh, 500,000 year old carving by Homer Rectus is a fiction, clap. We totally got Tripled. some people. Yeah. That was a dramatic effect. You guys flipped them from, from two to one, from yeah. the life expectancy to the ICU ones. Okay, so. Mm. Mm. Let's see, do I go with the panel or the audience? Let's, uh, I will default to taking them in order since we're kind of all over the place. A recent study found that in five adult ICUs in one hospital, there were over 2.5 million patient alarms in one month. I think, Evan, were you the only one on the panel who thought that yes. one was the fiction? The audience was convinced by that. And a lot of them thought that one was the fiction. And that one is science. science. Yeah, baby. How is that possible? That possible? Yes, it's well, a yeah. lot of freaking alarms. Finger all the time. Yeah, there's hundreds of patients alarm. every day, every few moments. There's an alarm going off, and it adds up to over 2.5 million alarms. There's always an alarm. You ever go to the hospital? There's always a bell ring. Yeah. So this was this. There it is. The study was specifically done to look at something called alarm fatigue. Yeah. Which Wait, so is kind of self-explanatory. It, it, Huh? So, you, so you ignore the alarm? Exactly. Yeah. So what happens, there's alarms going off all the time. You just ignore them. Yeah. They all, the same study That's also... That's an alarm, just under one alarm per second per month. Yeah, but there's one Yeah, but there's, but there's hundreds of patients. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. average. Okay. It's an average. Come on. Yeah, I know. It's a lot. It's crazy. 88.8% of them were false alarms. What does that mean? Wow. They, they, a lot were, of them. So that, that, no, does it mean that they fell out? Hold on. Susie and I agree. Things like there's the springs in those things are shot. They fall off your finger in like two seconds. But it's not just the oxygen sensor on your finger. It, a lot of the so they broke out specific the EKGs kinds of alarms. EKGs, right? Okay. So eighty-eight point eight percent. But when, when I say a false alarm, that means that nothing had to be done. They so either it was just an error, 
or it was not actionable, or it was a false positive. It was picking up, like it thought it was an arrhythmia, but it really wasn't arrhythmia. Or they got there so late they were already dead and didn't have to do anything. So clearly we need to take steps to reduce the number of alarms that are going off, Mm -hmm. raise that threshold, because when it's like crying wolf, right? This is the ultimate, the boy who cried wolf. There's alarms going off all the time. You just, you just, it's part of the background. You would, yeah, I work yeah. in hospitals. It's part of the background. It's like just, unless it's going off right next to you. you like they didn't ignore them? Yeah. Well, they don't, but it also okay, contributes to them see, constantly. I don't care unit. <laughs> <laughs> having to, you. having to run in, you know, to the patient room. Okay. And by definition, in ICU, you have one to one nursing anyway. So the nurses are kind of in the one nurse to one patient in the room. Um, see, so, why are nurses so angry? Yeah, because they're answering alarms all the The damn thing won't stop buzzing, Jay. That's why. Now, what about the NICU uh, with the with the babies? The yeah, so how it's probably the same thing, but they didn't study them. They only studied they the didn't study. Let's go on number two. <laughs> Tim Chaps. A new prospective study finds that those with a commute greater than thirty-one miles one way have an increased life expectancy compared to those who live closer to work. Jay, you thought this one was a fiction. You're the only one on the panel. There's quite a few people in the audience that agreed. A few people in the audience thought this one was fiction. They switched after Evan convinced them to go to the wrong one. Um, (laughs) And this one is the fiction. Very well done. Jay Bird. Nice, Jay. Stand up. Yeah. Well done, well done. Ah, there you go. Thank you. Okay. So, the study actually showed, as Jay also said, that people who have a longer commute have a lower quality of life. They are not as happy. Um, And, this wasn't the recent study, but I had to look it up. There are studies which show that people who have a longer commute actually have a shorter life expectancy. Nailed it! Shorter life expectancy. Not sure why. It's here for a I'll tell you why. Yeah, it's like yeah. zero commute. I'm going to live forever. But the, uh, the hypothesis is... There you go. i got to get on that. I'm watching Netflix yeah. in my underpants. <laughs> yeah, Watch that damn YouTube video. Yeah, YouTube. It's goddamn right with just a video on the right. The hypothesis is that uh, it causes stress. That people, when they have a longer commute, they have less time. And they feel pr- time pressure, and that causes stress, and the stress kills them. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, of that's, yeah. <laughs> so that's so. Let's go to number three. Scientists have discovered the oldest carving by a human ancestor, five hundred thousand years old, and the first by Homo erectus. And that is science. Isn't wow. that cool? I, like I said, I remembered reading. Yeah, that. yeah. yeah. That, that number. Was it was cool. a shell. Yeah. And the the, the oh. there's markings in the shell that are that are geometric. And there, it had to be deliberately carved. Like it was hard to do it. Yeah. They reproduced it and on both fossilized and fresh shells. And it's not the kind of thing that can happen by accident. Somebody had to like really scratch it out deliberately. And it's in kind of a pattern. They're still debating over whether or not you would consider this art, whether or not it counts as art. But that's kind of a. To be fair, yeah. they're still debating that over a <laughs> statue of a penis somewhere on a in the Tate Modern. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> Uh, but it clearly was a deliberate carving, and it was by a Homo erectus. Which so we we have carvings wow. by obviously Homo Homo sapiens. Like we talked about this, I think well, the other time you were on the show, yeah. um, a Cro-Magnon man in that case. Uh, we've also have paintings done by uh, Neanderthals, uh, but this is the first one by a Homo wow. erectus. Homo erectus is an older hominid. They, they emerged around two to two and a half million years ago. They went extinct about one hundred and forty thousand years ago. 
Um, they are almost certainly the ancestors of both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and modern humans. Uh, they were the first hominids probably to use fire. And, uh, for, and also the combination of hunting and using fire enabled them to essentially spread throughout the world. So they were the first ones to like really range far and wide. The Australopithecines were, were largely confined to Africa, for example. Can we talk more about the commute, though? No. Nope. Do you have any other insights you want to explain? Can we talk more about bed? I got it right, though. Yeah. You did, Jay. You got it right. Good job, well done. Sam. Solo victory. That's, it was, it's very exciting Feels to good. do this at, at a live show. Feels good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From a very intelligent <laughs> live audience. Yeah. It happens. The Homo erectus, though, is very surprising. It is pretty cool. Yeah. I like that one. Jay, do you have a quote for us? I have a quote. Do you need for you, my version? You good? This is a quote from Ernest Rutherford. A Kiwi. You guys know who he is? The Rutherford Adam. Yeah. Do you take ownership of this man? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then you, then you, will, you must take ownership. He owes you money? No. <laughs> <laughs> that that awesome? that that hey, Ernie, yeah, let's go that. today. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> the VIG is 6%, son of a bitch. Can we say that's actually how we found... Jay was like, I should find a New Zealand person. I was like, just look at the money. Yeah, it is. And <laughs> pick a random dude. Scientists are not dependent on the ideas of a single man, but on the combined wisdom of thousands of men, all thinking the sa- of the same problem, and each doing his little bit to add to the great structure of knowledge, which is gradually being erected. Ernest Rutherford! <laughs> we'll give him a pass on the whole man. Yeah. Thank you all for joining me for this episode. Thank you to the wonderful audience we had with us tonight. George, always a pleasure to have you on the show. It's so nice to be here again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this whole trip. It's, it's been, been wonderful. It's been unreal. I'm going to miss you guys. Yeah, I can't yeah, even yeah, begin really? to think about it. You have to come visit. Like We live right next door to your sister. I, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Never That's visits. true. Come see the funk band. Funk band. We definitely. Yeah. January 10th. January 10th. There you go. January 10th. Susie, wonderful having you on the show. Thank you, Susie. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We learned a lot tonight. Yeah. (laughs) You need to make more glowing stuff. Okay. I'll do that. Awesome. Awesome. Guys, as always, very much. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.